If you would turn with me to the book of Judges, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in the seventh verse of the second chapter. When we began our study of this book last week, we noticed at least one thing that helps us as we study this book, and that is to see the repetitive cycle that the book runs in. We're going to see again that cycle play out today, and the end of that cycle will be Othniel, or Othniel, the judge that the Lord raises up to deliver the people. The cycle runs like this. There is a season of peace and even prosperity. And in that season of peace and prosperity, the people grow lax and begin to provoke the Lord by going after false gods and falling in line with the heathen around them. That then provokes the anger of God. He expresses it by making them captive to the world they betrayed him by, and then God in mercy and grace raises up a deliverer, a judge, after hearing the groaning and cry of his people, he remedies their problem, often through great deliverance, and then there is a season of peace and prosperity, and in that season of peace and prosperity, the people grow cold and lax and begin to sin against the Lord. That's repeated over and over and over again. With each cycle, the spiritual condition of the people gets worse. And I told you last week, the first verse of chapter 1 is as good as it gets. It's all downhill from there. To reiterate, to reiterate that in chapter 2, verse 19, it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them they ceased not from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. The stubbornness of the people just seems to grow. And remember the twice stated summary of the book in chapter 17 and verse 6, and also in chapter 21 and verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is simply a statement of denial. Surely there was a king in Israel. He was not recognized and reigning over them as a man, but he was indeed the Lord their God. And you might remember if you were to fast forward throughout the history of the people of God that there comes a point in time when even they realize even they realize these judges just aren't getting it done. We need a real king. And this is what the scripture says concerning that attitude and that thought. And importantly, what the Lord thought of that attitude. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 and following, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us. What's the reason? Do you remember? Just like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. 
that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since today, I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing also to you. Heed their voice, however, solemnly warn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So there was no earthly king. There was a heavenly king. And the people had rebelled against that heavenly king. The word forsake is going to come up not only in 1 Samuel, but here in the book of Judges. We're going to talk about what it means to forsake the king and the horrible consequences that follow of having done so. So we're entering back in here to the second chapter. And in so doing, you'll remember in the first six verses of this second chapter, the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ, comes to visit the people. And with words of strong rebuke, because of their disobedience, and you remember last week, partial obedience is complete disobedience. And so with strong words of rebuke, the angel of the Lord says, you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive out this people from before you. They shall be thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. And what's the people's response? Oh, they weep and they cry. And last week, tears do not always equal and rarely equal true repentance. So before we move on any further, I want to talk about repentance for just a moment as it concerns the people of God. True repentance for the people of God is a turning from idols to the one true and living God. It is intentional. It's a grace of God bestowed. Our understanding of repentance is too watered down. True repentance is not momentary sorrow for experiencing unfavorable consequence. It seems to be that that's what the people here in the second chapter are expressing. They realize they've been given over. The Lord has given them over. And they are under horrible consequence. And they weep and they cry. But like we saw last week in verse 12, excuse me, verse 11... They're doing evil in the sight of the Lord again. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. When he defines what repentance is, he says, speaking of the Thessalonian Christians, he says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God to come. True repentance is heart-wrenching sorrow at the knowledge of sin committed against the holy and righteous God. And when the tears flow from that understanding of the heart, then and only then are tears symbols of true repentance. 
It's more than just being caught with your hand in the cookie jar. It's being sorry that you put yourself in the situation to be caught with your hand in the cookie jar at all. And turning from it. And endeavoring not to walk that path again. I want to read you a couple of sentences here from the Second London Confession regarding repentance. And this is a more balanced view of what repentance is. Far too often we think we repent once and it's done forever. We're done with repentance and we move on. Let me read you this. Repentance must continue through our lives. Why? The body of sin stays with you until you are glorified forever with Christ. The old man stays with you. Repentance must continue throughout our lives because of the body of death and its activities. But here's the blessing of this. God has made full provision through Christ and the covenant of grace to preserve believers in their salvation. He will hold us fast, right? Thus, although there is no sin so small that it is undeserving of damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it will bring damnation on those who are repenting. This makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. And if we're hearing the book of Judges rightly, and God help us to hear it rightly, what we hear in the book of Judges over and over and over again is a call to repentance. Repentance from our too close association with the things of the world. The things of the world represent the idols of the world. And just a reminder, that's why the Lord had told the people, drive out all of these pagan nations. He was concerned about the spiritual state of his own people, and the Lord knew in his great wisdom that a pagan people would infect his own people if they were left. We need to remember that. The Lord has left us in the world. We're not to be of the world. We're not to love what the world loves, pursue what the world pursues, or the same type of thing will happen to us. We need to hear with circumcised ears and heart the anthem call to holiness issued to the church by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. When he repeats Numbers 33, he says there, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We rightly make application of this, that a believer is not to be married to an unbeliever in covenant marriage. Amen to that. But don't stop there. That's not the only application. And I realize we must proceed with wisdom and caution, but 
a believer is not to be yoked together with an unbeliever, the question is asked, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, here's the quotation out of Numbers 33. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The book of Judges is nothing more than a very long commentary on Numbers 33 where it says, come out from among them and be clean. It's just that in reverse. The people were to go into the promised land, tear down the altars, drive out the pagans, and live there in the land flowing with milk and honey. And so they would have if they would have been obedient. Think about all the blessing of God. Don't hear me falling into prosperity preaching here because I'm not. Think about all the blessing of God that we have missed because of disobedience. The Lord said to this people, I'm going to give you houses, lands, orchards, vineyards, springs, even the animals. Just do what I tell you to do. And blessing will be so heaped on your head that you can't contain it. And the people do just like we do. Don't fancy yourself as being better than they. We disobey and forfeit much of the blessing of God. And that reminds us why the law was given to Moses to be given to the people in the first place. The law was given to distinguish a people of God from the heathen around them. The law is a reflection of the character and attributes of God. And so when the people fall under that in submission, they give off the character and attributes of God to a certain degree as well. And when we fail to live by these moral standards, we lose every sense and ability of being distinguished and separate from the world. And when we do so, not only will we, we then not only will not, but cannot be salt and light in the filth and darkness all around us. You see the corresponding nature of that, right? Salt to preserve a decaying culture. Light to give light to the dark culture around you. If we are not living in obedience to the commands of God and in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have just forfeited any distinguishing characteristics at all. And we are like disobedient Israelites living amongst the pagans in Canaan. And the result will be the same. The New Testament tells us that these things recorded in the old are for our learning, for our examples. And we be wise to hear them. So let's look here in chapter 2. 
in verse 7. Way back in verse 1, it says, after the death of Joshua, and then verse 7 through 10 seem to be a bit of a parenthesis where Joshua is revisited and, and see him standing here as the beacon that he really is. Joshua was totally unlike most of Israel, he and Caleb. Notice what the scriptures say. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders of Elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance. In the mountains. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Let's just deal with Joshua before we go any further. And I'm going to call this first point the blessing of an obedient life. Notice Joshua, one man, living in the fear of God, can make a huge difference. By God's grace, be that man. One man living and leading in the fear of God can make a huge difference. Say the same thing that Joshua said. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now you go and choose what you will do. But let me make it open and clear what I am leading mine to do. And let me just ask you fathers, grandfathers, uncles, will you by God's grace and great help be that type of man? I'm not asking you to do it in your own strength and I'm not asking you to do it without fail. Many days it's a repurposing of mind, heart, and soul to be this kind of a man God helping us and to declare over our families and anyone under our influence, as for this man and all of mine, we're serving the Lord. Now you choose. But what we also see in Joshua is not just that one man living and leading in the fear of God makes a huge difference, is that for those who die in the Lord, death is beautiful. I understand the scriptures called death the last enemy. I understand it's a fearful entrance to the other, other side of the river. But notice what it says about Joshua. He, it, it simply says, the servant of the Lord died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance. Take heart in this. All who were found in Christ when they die will be buried within the border of their inheritance. And I'm not talking about a physical burial. If you die in Christ, then wherever you were buried in this earth, you were buried within the border of your spiritual inheritance. And when Christ returns, the privileged place of those who have died first is to come out of the grave and meet the Lord in the air first. 
So whether in death or in life, we see the blessing of an obedient life in this man, Joshua. But then we have the sobering words of the 10th verse, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, when they've all died, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. And so that's the introduction to the next section here in the second chapter, which I'm going to call an unfaithful people. And it's very evident why. The 11th verse tells us, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice, all evil, regardless of when it is committed or whom is committing it, all evil is committed in the sight of the Lord. Children, hear me. What you can hide from your mother and father is not hidden from the Lord. It's that simple. The all-seeing eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the good and the evil, seeing both. We're told exactly how they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers. Notice the contrast. To serve Baal is to forsake the Lord. Hear it plainly. To serve a worldly idol is to have forsaken the Lord. And notice this. There was no open declaration by the people that said something like this. We will not serve the Lord. We will not be obedient to his commands. They weren't that brash. They weren't that arrogant. But nonetheless, the scripture says, they forsook the Lord. And notice how this is always tied to a reminder of their deliverance. Who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them and provoked the Lord to anger. So while there was no open declaration, we will not serve the Lord, their forsaking went something like this. First, it was accommodation, acclamation, acceptance, toleration, any word you want to use there, this was their attitude and action to the people of Canaan around them. And then it ultimately led to their full participation in the ways of the pagans. And we can trace their disobedience in these steps. First, it was just a failure to drive out the people. No harm, really. I mean, we mostly drove them out. We mostly eradicated the sin in our life. We mostly repented of it. We mostly mortified the sin that resides in our flesh. But then they went from failing to drive out the people to compromising by living around them. We saw that progression last week. And then it got even worse then they began to live not just around them, but with them. 
through intermarriage, if this is what we read here in the second chapter, they began to give their sons and daughters to the sons and daughters of the pagans. And it was through this action, through this intermarrying, that their real downward fall began to pick up speed. Because once they intermarried, then they were no longer willing to tear down the idols of their wives. And vice versa. And God told them exactly what would happen. Remember last week? There are going to be thorns in your side and snares to your soul. It's the same thing that he says to us. If by the help of the Spirit and the grace of God, you do not eradicate sin in your life, it will be a perpetual thorn in your side and, God forbid, a snare to your soul. But I want to trace this out just a little bit further because it gets worse. And I trace this out only to show that forsaking God is a slow burn. And what I mean by that it comes on slowly, but it ends in scorching death. And that's, that's a reference to the final state of a soul that has not bowed to Christ, but also it's a reference to a literal scorching death that we read about in Psalm 106. Notice how the psalmist in, in these verses, as I read them to you, he is summarizing the book of Judges. And he's taking the disobedience of not driving the people out initially to its furthest end, which actually happened amongst the people of God. This is what he says. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled. Isn't that a, a soft word? What's the harm in mingling? I can do this. I'm strong enough. I can go in and out amongst pagans and heathen as I please. They mingled with the Gentiles and so they learned their works. They served their idols. And I'm reading from Psalm 106. They served their idols which became a snare to them. How so? Hear these heart-wrenching words in verse 37 of Psalm 106. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. Therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people so that he abhorred his own inheritance. And he gave them into the hands of the Gentiles who hated them and ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times he delivered them. And think judge after judge after judge. But they rebelled in their counsel and they were brought low by their iniquity. I think it very safe to say that in the beginning, 
when they failed to obey God to drive out the heathen, it was never in their heart and mind that one day they would sacrifice their own children to these pagan idols and gods. But notice, that's exactly where it ended up. The same type of thing happens to us today. This shows us the deceitfulness of sin. The power of sin. The power of Satan. Never did it cross the mind, I suppose, of those who lived in Joshua's day who failed to tell their children of the great works of the Lord that someday my grandchildren, great-grandchildren, or great-grandchildren will be the ones whose blood are shed to these false and pagan, pagan idols. But it happened nonetheless. Sin is a power. It is a power that holds you in its grip. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 3. He says we are all under sin. He says of himself, I was sold under sin. And these words are from Dale Ralph Davis. I told you he would come up often, right? This is what he says. And I hope that you sense the force of what he says as much as, as I have dealt with it this week. He says, quoting, until the church gets a proper view of sin, we will never see salvation as much more than a moving religious charade than as an act of holy, vicious violence by which Christ wrenches his people out of the clammy clutches of the prince of darkness. That's what God the Father did by crushing his son at Calvary. It was an act of holy, vicious violence by which his son was wrenching a people out of the clutch of death. That's salvation. That's the power of sin. That's what it took to get us out of it. Don't trifle with it. What did John Owen say? Be killing sin. Or it will be killing you. See it for what it is. And learn from this example. Why would we walk the same steps? Why would we not learn from the disobedience of this people that started so seemingly innocently? It wasn't innocent, but it just seemed to be not quite so bad. Just mingling. And in the end shedding their own children's blood in the worship of demons. You say, well, that's an extreme case. Yes, it's for your example and for mine. See it for what it is. So we've seen the unfaithful people. And having gone to such great length to see it, let me read down through verse 15. It says, they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. I don't want to say too much here, but I want to say enough. The Baals or the Baalim and the Ashtoreths, though there were multiple gods, most viewed them as the gods of fertility and prosperity and the way that you worshipped these gods and served down and 
provoked the Lord to anger was to go to the temple of Baal and hire a prostitute, forsake the Lord in hopes and in efforts that Baal would be appeased and that he would bring prosperity into your life. And it's no wonder that in verse 14 we say the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. This is the third point. We've seen Joshua. We've seen an unfaithful people. Now I want you to see their faithful God. Lord, help us to see the gospel here. If we don't see it here, you're not going to see it in the gospel of John either. If you don't see it here, you're not going to find it in John 3.16 either. If you don't see it in Judges 2.16, it's the same gospel. Different words, same meaning. Let's get down to that verse. In verse 14, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Notice the Lord's action, but notice that this is an expression of God's faithfulness. It seems harsh. It seems like a strict hand of discipline. That it is, but it is also the faithfulness of God to his covenant that he has made with this people. I will be your God. And you will be my people. It's mercy and grace right here that God did not just give them up. And I want you to see the correlation between Romans chapter 1. There was a point in time when Paul, in his mind, writing through Romans, a point in time where God gave them over. It would make sense to read the same thing right here. But notice, God delivers them into the hands of their plunderers. He sells them into the hands of their enemies. And the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. The summary of this in verse 15, they were greatly distressed. That's stating the case in its best terms. I want you to notice the first word of verse 16. Somebody tell me what it is in your Bible. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. That's the gospel right there. That's the grace of God right there. That's the scandal of grace. In our minds, totally justified if God annihilates every one of them and leaves nothing but ash. But if that would have been the case, we would be a heaping pile of ash too. Nevertheless, here's the gospel in Judges. Listen to it. The Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered him. Remember, it was God who gave them over to them and now he is delivering them from the ones he had delivered them to. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And I want you to see that each one of these judges, 
that we're going to see, all 12 of them in the book of Judges, in some way prefigure the ultimate judge, Christ, in that he makes an ultimate deliverance from sin. And that's what these judges are intended to do. They're to make your heart and the people of God yearn for a true judge that can accomplish things in perfection. And so we're in verse 18. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. You got to love the King James right here. It repented the Lord. That's the phrase that's translated moved to pity by the New King James. And when you think the repenting of the Lord, it's usually helpful to think of the word relenting. The Lord is relenting of something. And we got to get this at least this right, right here to understand grace. Whose repenting mattered here? The people's or the Lord's? Oh, they had tried before. Remember the tears? What did that produce? Zero. The repenting or the relenting or the pity of the Lord accomplishes everything. He relented against burning against them in hot, fierce anger. And the question has to be asked, why did he do it? Because of faithfulness. But we can't totally dismiss the word pity. The word groaning that is found here in this verse 18 is the same word that is used to refer to the people groaning in Egypt under slavery. And the same reaction the Lord has to that he heard it. He took notice of it. He was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers. Last week, we made the point that the repetitive cycle of revival and declension, revival and declension, if that cycle in your life is not stopped by walking in continued, persevering obedience, helping all the way by the Spirit of God, then your last state is going to be worse than your first. Because what pricks your conscience today may not even be felt once the cycle plays itself out five or six times. They reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers. What does this do? It shows us the inability of the judges and makes our hearts cry after the true judge who, who dies no more. 
more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Here's the cycle. Verse 20, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel again. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has heeded not my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel. Notice the intention and the purpose of God. He is going to test, prove, or try Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. I want to make a little, little more progress before we stop here in chapter 3. These are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war. Have you ever read Bunyan's book, Holy War? Go get it and read it. The children of Israel here and the children of God today must know something of this holy war. Notice that's the reason that those who had not known war would finally come to know it. So here is who the Lord left. The five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon and from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And here's the summary again. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 7. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asterisks what do you think is going to happen? Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served him eight years. And when they cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer from the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord delivered the king into his hand. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Preview to next week, verse 12. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again. Will they ever learn? They will not. Will we? Only when we look to Christ. Only when we look to Christ. What we learn from their failures, no man is going to deliver. Only Christ. And it says of Othniel that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And it's no wonder that the New Testament tells us that Jesus the Christ has the spirit without measure.
He is the perfect judge. And what was the function of the judges? To go out and make war, to battle, to lead the people in the worship of God, to perform for them what they could not do for themselves. Jesus the Christ in perfection is the judge of his people. Look to him and be saved. Let's pray. Then we're going to have communion. Father, we thank you for the blessings of the gospel. We thank you that there is no want in Christ. There is no weakness. There is no inability. Lord, help us to see sin for what it is, that for which Christ died. Help us to see the the highest cost that he paid to ransom a people out of the clutches of death. We're thankful this morning to be here as a people called to remember. So as we partake of this ordinance, help us to remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ in our place. We ask it so that he may receive all the glory and all the praise. And we do so by asking it in his name. Amen.